Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope I hope you can spend lots of time with me today because I've got some amazing programming ahead for you. And I've got Dr. Alex McFarland joining me right now. He is uh, not only a, an amazing author, an apologist, but he's an evangelist and has preached all over the world. Alex, welcome back to the show. Well, Bill, thanks for having me. Yeah. You're very gracious, and it's always a privilege to be with the uh, Wonderful listeners of Faith Radio. Oh, thank you. We love having you on, and I, I hear from listeners almost every time you're on how much they appreciate you and they love your teaching and your gentle style and all that God has gifted you with. So, uh, w- uh, way to go, and to God be the glory. Well, I, I give God the glory. I mean, uh, I if, if anything good is happening, we, we give God the glory. But, uh, you know, Bill, as you and I are having this wonderful conversation, uh, we're coming up on... Uh, I can't decide if I which I love better, Christmas or Easter, but I love them both. The birth of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. These are my two favorite times of year, Bill. Uh, I, I love them too, and I know we've got um, some Easter conversation we're going to have today. I know you've uh, prepared some thoughts, and it energizes my heart whenever I hear about the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. You know, Charles Wesley, the founder of Methodism and a great composer, wrote those words, and no doubt many of your listeners will be singing this at church on Sunday morning. Christ the Lord is risen today, sons of men and angels say, raise your joys and triumphs high, sing ye heaven and earth reply. And uh, we want to reply with wonderful praise and hallelujah that Christ is risen. Hey, but listen to this. Uh, so I'm doing all this research. I'm, I'm writing... Bill, do you ever like you're studying your Bible and you come across like some rich nugget and it you go down kind of a rabbit trail and you find more and more and more things? You yes. ever do that? Yes, all the time. Yeah, same here. And and I was about three or four nights ago, I, I was thinking about you and I are going to have this conversation today, and I thought, well, I want to go over the weeks of Holy Day. Very often, Holy Wednesday is called the Day of Silence, but, you know, Palm Sunday, Christ rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey, and Monday uh, cleared the temple. There was a, you know, clearing of the temple on the Monday after Palm Sunday. And, uh, you know, Jesus said that, um, you know, my house is to be a house of prayer. This is Luke 19.46. Interestingly, um, people ask the question, did Jesus really claim to be the Son of God or the Messiah? There are a lot of reasons that we could emphatically say yes, but I, I was looking at the events of Monday after Palm Sunday, and Jesus begins overturning the table of the money changers, right? And he says, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves, Luke nineteen forty Isn't it something that that temple where pious Jews went to commune with God Jesus called it his house. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, there is yet another tacit acknowledgement of his deity, isn't it? Yeah, no kidding. Great point, Alex. Thank you well, for putting that in perspective this day. So 
we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four Gospels, right? Now, it's interesting, of the four Gospels, 30 chapters deal with Passion Week and Resurrection. And this is Passion Week, Christ went to Calvary, right? So I, I calculated that's 34% of the Gospel content, because in the four Gospels, we have 89 chapters total from all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So 30 chapters deal with the final week of Jesus' time on earth. That's one-third of the gospel content. Mm -hmm. All right, four chapters deal with Christ's infancy. That's 4%. 55 chapters deal with uh, Jesus' public ministry. So that's 62% of the gospels. But I was thinking about how, you know, one-third of the entire gospels deal with the last week of Christ's life on earth. And uh, one theologian, um, a guy named Andy Nacelli, said, and I thought this was a pretty good observation, he said, the Gospels are essentially passion narratives with extended introductions. I like that. Because clearly, not only the most important week of Christ's ministry on earth, but the most important week of world history, because it was what transpired this week that makes it possible for us to be saved. Mm-hmm. Well, I love, I love little fun facts like that. I, I love numbers that you crunch and you realize that out of the 89 ch chapters in the four Gospels, a third is dedicated to one week. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. Yeah. And um, I know you and I, it's been our privilege over the years, you and I have had so many rich conversations, very, very rewarding and memorable. And we've talked about the resurrection and, of course, so many of the great scholars. I, I don't know if these names are recognizable to everybody, but these are some incredibly uh, renowned academics like Gary Habermas and Michael Lycona, Thomas Wright from England. Uh, William Lane Craig here mm -hmm. in the States, um, people that have spent literally decades looking into the resurrection. And I mean, they, they, Habermas would say it is the most documentable fact of the ancient world that that tomb was left empty and Christ arose. And, um, you know, one writer said, Easter proves you can put truth in a grave, but it won't stay there. Mm. And, love that. you know, the the fact that Jesus rose, I mean, what does that tell us? Well, God exists. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah. Forgiveness and salvation and restoration is possible. Christ affirmed the scriptures over and over. Basically, the biblical worldview, all of the foundation stones of what Christianity believes, and really what, what we stake our eternity on, it's all validated, proven, guaranteed by the fact that our Lord rose from the dead and he says, whoever believes in me will, will conquer the grave as well. Dr. Alex McFarlane is my guest, and we are uh, talking about the, the final week in the life of Jesus. And it's uh, uh, fascinating, Alex. I appreciate not only your study and research on this, but I, I love that you've referenced some other theologians as well, some colleagues of yours, uh, that have done a really deep dive into the resurrection and clearly... It is, in fact, uh, the most historically verifiable event in world history. It, it really is. It, it really is. And, um, you know, the, the week, it, it's amazing. Okay, 
you know, leading up to Calvary's cross, I mean, Jesus, it's funny, um, he's in Bethany. Uh, this is the house of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. And Bethany, by the way, the, the word Bethany means house of suffering. And most scholars believe, like, um, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, that Jesus and his disciples were staying in Bethany, probably at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So on Tuesday of, of Passion Week, Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem, and uh, Jesus debates the Pharisees, and let me say, he, uh, uh, he does not mince words. I mean, Matthew 23, 24 through 33, he says, you know, you blind guides, you sons of impurity, snakes, vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? And, you know, we don't talk about these kind of things um, a lot today, but I mean, Christ was very clear that anyone that, you know, misleads or keeps somebody from knowing the truth, Truth suppression. Mm -hmm. Truth suppression gets fiery condemnation from the Lord. But after this, which is probably in the morning, Tuesday midday to Tuesday afternoon, uh, Jesus uh, and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives, which is due east of the temple. And you can look at the temple. It sort of overlooks Jerusalem. But he gives a sermon very commonly called the Olivet Discourse. Uh, and it's one of the longest messages um, but Jesus talks about the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming, the end of the age, uh, his second coming, and final judgment. And it was also probably this day, um, Tuesday of Passion Week, that Judas makes the decision to go negotiate with the Sanhedrin and betray Jesus. And then Wednesday, very often called the Day of Silence, and I know Bill, you know, um, you and I are on the radio on Wednesday of Holy Week, but um, this is a day. What What is Jesus doing this day? Well, maybe he's back in Bethany resting, anticipating Passover that's going to come because Thursday and Friday and leading up to the resurrection, obviously, I mean, this is going to be the most significant day in world history, mm -hmm. most significant days in Christ's life. Um, and... Uh, Wednesday, while Jesus is preparing for his death and resurrection, Judas is going to consort for his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver. Just amazingly significant what's going on each and every one of these days. Yeah. I will always uh, wonder about the way in which Judas chose to respond after three years of ministry with Jesus. I know. Do you know, history says, now this is not in the New Testament, although um, early church voices intimated that Judas and Barabbas were part of a sect together. Oh. Because, I mean, we, we ask, you know, how could Judas, you know, he saw the miracles. He was with Christ. He was one of the disciples. Um, or he was, he was an apostle, but he wasn't really a disciple. And let me explain. An apostle was somebody who had seen the Lord, was with the Lord, the incarnate Lord, uh, or saw the resurrected Jesus. So Judas was an apostle, but he wasn't a disciple. And why and how could he betray the Lord that he knew? Um, well, Barabbas, 
that was a murderer and an insurrectionist was part of a sect that wanted to overthrow Rome. And I think maybe, maybe it was, we don't fully know the mind of the betrayer, but maybe when Judas saw that Christ was going to be the Lamb of God to lay down his life, and he was not at that moment orchestrating a military coup, maybe that's why he decided to betray the Lord and abandon him. But isn't it amazing that Judas that would betray Jesus and Barabbas that would be released. And remember, Pilate was conflicted. He said, really? You want me to release a murderer to you? Barabbas and Judas were colleagues. Hmm, that's so interesting. My guest is Dr. Alex McFarland. We are going to take a little break. When we come back, we'll continue talking to Alex in just a minute. Listen to Faith Radio Live or on demand no matter where you go. Download the free Faith Radio app in your app store today. My guest is my friend Dr. Alex McFarlane, who's joined us this week. We're talking about the Holy Week, and if you just joined us, we were talking about Judas right before the break, and, uh, you know, Alex, I I always think of that verse in Mark, I think it's 14, that talks about uh, it would have been better for that man if he had not been born, referring to Judas, Um, and I always found that verse to be a little bit troubling. It's such a sobering statement, you know, it would have been better for Judas to not have been born than to betray Jesus. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. You you know, there's a verse where um, it's talking about Judas in Acts 125, when they replaced Judas. uh, I think they chose Matthias, but it says that, um, because, see, Judas on Friday morning, what we call Good Friday, that morning, Judas, that was when he um, hanged himself and committed suicide. But it says he went to his place. What was his place, Acts 125? Well, it was hell. I mean, just, you know. uh, So, yeah, I mean, it would have been better had he not been born. But, um, you know, he had remorse, but not repentance. Do you remember when Cain killed Abel? And Cain felt remorse, but not really repentance. And And that's like Judas, he went and he tried to give back the 30 pieces of silver. By the way, it's fascinating how um, Jesus was betrayed for the price of a slave, and so was Joseph in the Old Testament in Genesis 37 through 45. Joseph uh, was very pictorial of Jesus Christ. And the thing about the Old Testament, whether it be David the shepherd or wise King Solomon or, you know, Hosea and Jeremiah uh, suffering, weeping, all of these Old Testament scenarios, people and events, uh, the New Testament says that they were examples to depict Christ. And it, it was almost like that, you know, pious people of that day should have been able to connect the dots. It's like, oh, wait a minute. You know, Joseph emerged alive from an intended grave. Uh, Pharaoh said of Joseph, whatever he says, do it. Mary said of Jesus, whatever he says, do it. Joseph betrayed for the 
price of a slave in his day, 20 pieces of silver. Jesus betrayed for the price of a slave in his day, 30 pieces of silver. So, I mean, and born in Bethlehem, you know, all the criteria. One of, one of the things about it, I was talking to a college student this morning, Bill, who was really saying, you know, d is Jesus really, really the one? And I said, yes. I mean, only the Lord Jesus fulfills every box on the punch list, if mm -hmm. you will, for Messiahship. Plus, he rose from the dead. But Thursday is, okay, Thursday is when Passion Week really uh, gets in high gear. Okay, from Bethany, Jesus sends Peter, James, and John, I'm sorry, Peter and John, to the upper room to make preparations for the Passover feast. And Jesus, in Luke 22, 15 through 16, he said, you know, I've, I've been very desirous to eat this Passover meal with you because I will not share this meal with you again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so it's just, it's really amazing. In the, la the Lord's Supper, uh, the Last Supper, uh, Jesus establishes the Lord's Supper, I mean, what we commonly call communion, because he says, you know, do this in remembrance of me. And um, no doubt, Bill, the, the disciples present, they couldn't fully grasp everything that he was saying. You know, this bread is my body broken for you. This, this wine is my blood shed for you. They would eventually understand it, I think. But after the upper room, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Luke 24. I'm, I'm sorry, Luke 22:44. Jesus experiences a rare but documented medical condition called hematidrosis. He sweated drops of blood, which it's possible. It's been documented. People under incredible duress. By the way, Bill, um, the few documented cases of hematidrosis, most people don't even survive. But Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. He, he knows. I mean, you think about the appropriate measure of God's wrath for the sin of the world mm. is about to be poured onto him. Um, the sin of all humanity. So, yeah, I guess he really was under incredible stress to think about that. And uh, in the garden, Judas betrays him with a kiss. He's arrested. And then he goes through trials. Now, according to Jewish law, somebody was not to be tried after dark. And yet into the night and through the sunrise of Friday morning, um, Jesus is tried before Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin. He is taken before Pilate twice, Herod Antipas, who was a very... Um, sexually perverse individual, Pilate again, then the military trial, and by sunrise he's uh, en route to being whipped and beaten with a crucifragrium, it's called uh, crown of thorns, and then ultimately would go to um, Calvary and Good Friday. Uh, by the way, I'll say this and I'll throw it back to you, but I realize a lot of people have questions about a Friday crucifixion. I, I absolutely do believe the Lord was crucified on a Friday, and it, maybe it's another subject for another show, Bill. Um, you know, three days and three nights does not mean he had to be in the ground 72 hours. Um, in the Jewish reckoning, and I've, I've interviewed Jewish scholars, 
you know, believers and non-believers. But a part of a day was considered all of the day. But um, can I briefly give one more reason? I definitely think it was a Friday crucifixion because of something that happened on Saturday. Okay? All right. In Matthew 27, 62 through 66, uh, it says that on the Sabbath day, after the preparation day, the chief priest met with Pilate, which, by the way, they were breaking the Sabbath to have a, a, a work meeting. But on the Sabbath day, they meet with Pilate. They say, um, please send soldiers, secure the tomb. The deceiver said he would be raised after the third day. So the next deception will be worse than the first. But here's the thing. Um, the day after the crucifixion was when they met with Pilate to make sure there were soldiers in front of the tomb. Well, the day after the crucifixion, which was Saturday, Matthew 27, 62, says the next day after preparation. It had to be Saturday, therefore the crucifixion would have had to have been Friday. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So Saturday, Christ is in the tomb. By the way, let me say this, and thanks for allowing me to <laughs> sort of chase this rabbit. Um, technically, in the Jewish reckoning of time, Christ would have only had to been in the tomb uh, 24 hours and two minutes. Now, he was put in the tomb before dark on Friday, but uh, because sundown, they would have believed that they were in the Sabbath. Here's the thing. In a very technical sense, if he had been put in the tomb Friday at 11.59 and resurrected Sunday morning at 12.01 a.m., in the Jewish reckoning of time, that would have constituted three days and three nights. But it was light, then dark on Friday. He was in the tomb 24 hours through Saturday. And then it was dark, then light, Sunday night through resurrection morning. Thus, three days and three nights. But um, Sunday we'll go to church and we'll celebrate that greatest of all realities. Honestly, Matthew 28, 5-6, the angel says to Mary, Joanna, Salome, and Mary, the mother of James, they go down. The angel says, do not be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. And Bill, I'll close with this. The, the tomb was left empty so that our lives could be, could be made full. Isn't that a wonderful reality? It's the, it's the best reality. It is what the foundation of our faith is based on. It is, it is what gives us hope. It is the absolute best news ever, and that is the gospel. So, Alex, you've made a beautiful, wonderful point, and I appreciate so much you coming on the show, and I'm so glad we had a chance to chat before the Easter uh, Resurrection Day, though I can at least greet you and, and your family a, a blessed and happy Easter. And you as well, and the wonderful Faith Radio Network and all the listeners. I, I love you in the Lord, and I thank God for uh, the chance to be on. Amen. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you in a couple of weeks. Bless you, my friend. You blessings, yes. Dr. Alex McFarland has been my guest. You can go learn about him and his writing and his books at alexmcfarland.com. We'll take a short break and be right back.
I am so glad to have Pastor Andy Davis back with me. He is the senior pastor at First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina. Also, you can go learn about him and his powerful ministry at twojourneys.org. I go there all the time. I've been becoming quite an Andy Davis junkie lately. I hate to admit that, Andy. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great, Bill. How are you doing? <laughs> well, I'm, I, I go often to twojourneys.org and listen to your amazing teaching there. Well, that's encouraging, and I'm good to, glad to be with you again. Yeah, so we've got a powerful week that we have upon us, and uh, I'm so glad that we can talk uh, Resurrection Sunday or Good Friday or whatever you want to talk about today. Absolutely, and uh, so grateful for the chance uh, to be with you, but also for us as Christians to focus on on Holy Week, on Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection. So it's a you know it's just a joy to be able to celebrate that with you and to talk to your listeners as well. But like as I was praying about this time, I I wanted to zero in on Jesus's uh, prayer in Gethsemane and some things that the Lord had led me to study concerning that. I think there's a lot of amazing lessons from that time. I love that time. So I, when I was talking to some teachers and pastors and people and offering this week of teaching, I just said, what, what is really feeling alive in your heart right now that you want to talk about this Holy Week? And, and I didn't yeah. know we'd go to Gethsemane today, but I can't wait. Yeah, in particular, it was some time ago, I remember reading in the King James Version in uh, the account in, in Mark's Gospel, about Gethsemane. And in, in Mark 14, uh, there the account says Jesus was, and it's kind of archaic, but amazed. Um, and when Jesus came to Gethsemane, he was sore amazed. And the word sore just means very or extremely. But the word amazed just struck me hmm. with tremendous power. And uh, I started to meditate on that. And uh, I wrote uh, a message that I gave at Southeastern Seminary on Gethsemane, and that was one of the central insights. But there's just so many things that are valuable about the experience in Gethsemane, and I want to kind of bring those out. So I was thinking just the time that we have to talk about the facts of Gethsemane, what happened uh, from Matthew's gospel, just kind of walking through that. But then to go to the mysteries of Gethsemane and the glories, uh, those are the things that are in my mind and heart. So uh, if that's all right, I'd like to walk through that with you. Well, I'm all in on all of this, just so you know, but I hope we do get back to Sora Maze, too. I want to know more about that as well. For sure. So the facts of Gethsemane are clear. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Mm. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken, 
away unless I drink it. May your will be done. Uh, when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping, resting? Uh, behold, the hour is near and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived and with him was a, a crowd armed with swords and clubs. So the thing, Bill, that struck me about Gethsemane, uh, something B.B. Warfield said, uh, that Jesus effectively lived his entire life under the shadow of the cross. He said the prospect of his suffering was a perpetual Gethsemane to him. Uh, Jesus said many times leading up to the last week of his life, he knew exactly what was going to happen. He said in Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed, meaning his death on the cross. Uh, it's clear in uh, the Gospels, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. Uh, he said in Matthew 20, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Uh, they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised alive. He knew very well what was going to happen to him. He told the disciples in detail again and again. Um, but now the time had come for him to make the final decision himself about whether he would go to the cross or not. Gethsemane, the word literally means olive uh, press or oil press. Uh, it was a place where there was a uh, uh, where olive oil, olive, olive green olives were pressed to make oil. Uh, but it's also a picture of intense spiritual pressure as though Jesus himself were being pressed in Gethsemane. Now, you could ask, why did he go to Gethsemane? It was a place of refuge, a place of retirement. He went there frequently, a place where he would pray. But because he would go there frequently, he knew that Judas Iscariot knew that he would go there. And so he went there intentionally so that Judas would be able to find him that night after he left the upper room where they're having the Last Supper. Um, he went to lead the enemies of Jesus to where he was. And Jesus wanted to make it easy for Judas to find him because he was not a victim. Jesus willingly laid down his life. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down freely. So he went there for that reason. And he went there especially to pray. He wanted to go to pray to his heavenly father. Now, as he arrives with the 11 apostles, Judas not being with them, of course, he left um, all of them except his three inner circle uh, apostles, Peter, James, and John. These were the ones who had seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration. They'd seen him in his most radiantly glorious. Now they're going to see him at his most humbled, his lowest. He, they saw him at his highest. Now they're going to see him his most humiliating, humiliated, groveling, effectively groveling on the ground, begging God, if possible, that the cup be removed. So we see the humanness of Jesus, and he was there to pray. And as he arrived, he was overwhelmed with emotions. In Matthew uh, 26, 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, stated plainly, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's just incredible what the pressure he was going through. As a matter of fact, I believe he was so overwhelmed by what was going on, what was about to happen, that he almost died in Gethsemane. 
I think he was, he needed actual supernatural and physical strengthening. And so God dispatched an angel, an angel from heaven, Luke twenty two forty three, appeared to him and strengthened him. Hmm. So we can see the frailty of Jesus in his humanity. Uh, though when you consider it, the angel was created by Christ, created because Jesus created all things. The father created all things through him. And yet at that moment, Jesus was so much weaker than the angel. The angel had to strengthen him. Wow. And then very significantly, uh, in Luke twenty two forty four, it says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So I don't know, Bill, if you've thought about that. What I mean, the pressure, the, the blood pressure being so great that I think the capillaries just below the surface in, in his face burst. And, and he's just bleeding hmm. uh, in overwhelming agony there. Uh, and, and his sweat was dropping like great drops of blood. And, and I would think that we read it literally that that was the first shedding of blood that Jesus did for our sins, even there in Gethsemane. And so what was the prayer? Well, it says going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So we see physical position. He's totally prostrate. He's falling on his face. He's he's in a physical position of complete humbled, humbling before the Father. Um, and then he says, if it is possible, or in Mark's gospel, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible. That's heartrending. Any of us who are fathers who have children, the word Abba there in Mark's account is, is Aramaic for daddy. He's, he's like a little child. He's re- reduced to speaking to his heavenly father as though he were a little child. And I can scarcely imagine what that must have been like for his heavenly father to hear him say, Abba, Father, everything's possible for you. You can do anything. If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. And so he's probing the limits of God's sovereignty, uh, what is possible. Now, later, Jesus is going to make it plain in Matthew's gospel. He knows there's no other way. Uh, When Peter drew his sword to try to protect Jesus and rescue him, Jesus told him to put his sword away. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Then he said, do you think I cannot call on my father? And he would at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scripture be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So Jesus knew the scriptures. He knew the prophecies. He knew that the scripture was written and sealed in the blood of literally millions of animals uh, that had been sacrificed over centuries of history. All of them a picture of the final sacrifice that Jesus offered. He knew very well what And so we have to understand this cup. And when he said, take this cup from me, I believe that this cup represents God's righteous wrath and judgment against the world, against sinners in the world for their sins. I think it represents hell. Um, In Revelation 14, it says the damned in hell will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And it says there, they will be tormented with burning sulfur and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night. That's the cup. So imagine that cup 
being effectively presented to Jesus. Jesus is staring into the cup of, of, the, of the full wrath of God against sin, and he's understandably shrinking back from it in horror. The cup, the wrath of God is terrifying. It's a consuming fire. And uh, it's it's like God's omnipotence focused like a laser on the destruction of of those that are damned, those that are under his just wrath. And so Jesus is shrinking back from drinking that cup. And then we see the submission of Jesus, yet not as I will, but as you will. So this is the centerpiece of the mystery that in the second half of our time I want to talk about. This is the intense mystery but he is willing to do the will of his father. Then he goes back to his disciples. He finds them sleeping. He says, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray. He zeroes in on Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He's, he's urging them to pray. And then he goes away a second time and prays, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Goes back a, a second time. He again finds them sleeping. They're exhausted from sorrow, Luke tells us. And he goes once more and prays this, the same thing, uh, the same thing. And then he's ready to go and give his life as Judas arrives. So th- those are the facts of Gethsemane. Uh, maybe uh, in part two, we can talk about the mysteries of Gethsemane. I would love that. That's a, been powerful, Andy. I so uh, appreciate so many of the dots you've connected. Uh, this cup of wrath that he was anticipating, the angel that uh, ministers to him in his weakness and gives him strength. Uh, yeah. These are just powerful reminders. Dr. Andy Davis is my guest. We are uh, talking today, if you've just joined me, uh, about Gethsemane. And we're going to talk about the submission of Jesus and what happened next when we come back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com. So glad to have Dr. Andy Davis as my guest today. He comes all the way from First Baptist Church of Durham, North Carolina. Today we're talking about Gethsemane and now the submission of Jesus. Really, really good teaching, Andy. Well, it's it's one of the deepest, one of the most convicting and encouraging things I've ever studied. Uh, and so now I want to just open up the mysteries. There's mystery here. And there needs to be mystery as we read the Bible. The Bible is the, the infinitely deep word of God. Paul says, oh, the depths of the riches, the wisdom, the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments. Uh, Theologian Herman Bavink said, mystery is the vital element of theology, the truth which God has revealed concerning himself in Scripture far surpasses human conception and comprehension. And so when we come to the incarnation of Jesus, we come to infinite mystery. We see uh, a mingling of, of fully God, fully man in ways that are beyond our comprehension. It is, I think, the most profound mystery of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we see Jesus's full humanity here, his weakness, his ability to 
to waver and fear and shrink back in some sense, to sweat great drops of blood and almost to die in the garden. See, you see all that. We see a very full, real, emotional life, full and perfect, uh, without sin, um, but fully, fully God, fully man. And he displays the reality of his title, Man of Sorrows, in Gethsemane. So the mystery is how can Christ be both omnipotent deity and yet, uh, you know, frail humanity? And how do we understand specifically his fear of death, um, which is remarkable? You know, throughout history, pagan soldiers like Romans face death frequently, completely unafraid. There's the famous story of Socrates, the pagan philosopher, drinking a, a cup of hemlock and draining it without any hesitation at all. And we see Christian martyrs going to their their death with tremendous courage. Um, but yet Martin Luther said of Jesus, no man ever feared death like this man. Um, so how do we understand that? And and so the the aspect of it came across with the, the insight that I read uh, when I began to you from from Mark 14:33, And I would commend the King James Version translation because all the other English translations give different words for the Greek word ekthambeomai is the Greek word. And the KJV does a good job, actually, of translating it uh, in Mark 14:33. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. Well, when I saw the word amazed, I thought it was it was remarkable. I, I looked it up in the Greek, got the Greek word, and I saw the way it was used in other places. Uh, it usually had to do with, with a crowd reaction to Jesus's ministry, to a miracle by Jesus, let's say or a miracle by the apostles, the healing of the lame beggar in Acts 3.11, or Mary and the other women at the angel that showed up at the tomb, and they were amazed. Well, how does that apply to Jesus in Gethsemane? Well, the idea, the concept of being astonished implies a sense of surprise or wonder as if you're somewhat caught off guard. Uh, you didn't expect that. Now, we know that Jesus knew full well what was going to happen to him. We know that he taught the disciples in great detail what would happen to him in Jerusalem. I think what happened in Gethsemane is that God the Father revealed to Jesus in his humanity the depths of what the cup would be like, the cup of his wrath, what it would actually be like spiritually to drink the cup of his wrath. Now, we know from John 5.20, Jesus says the Father shows him all things. He shows him the works of that he does. Deknumi is the Greek word there. He shows it to him. So the father shows the son things, and Jesus, as a prophet, had almost a visionary understanding of what was about to happen. Well, in this case, it was the full, unbridled wrath of God against Jesus as our substitute for our sins. This is what it will be like to suffer under my wrath. And you can see the effect it had on Jesus. The cup is revealed at a deeper level. Jesus is sore amazed, overwhelmed with amazement, and is literally knocked to the ground. So you could imagine, let's say, the difference between a black and white, an old black and white photo of the Grand Canyon versus an IMAX movie of a half an hour helicopter trip through the Grand Canyon. It's just two different levels of understanding of what it's like. Jesus knew the facts of the cross. But now he knew what it would be like to, to receive effectively the lightning strike of the wrath of God against him for our sins. 
And so you could ask, why did the father reveal this to Jesus? I think it was to ask him effectively, will you do it? If this is what it's going to be like, will you do it? To enable Jesus to make a clearly informed choice. Why didn't the father do it sooner? Well, look what happened to Jesus. He couldn't have handled it. It was almost physically impossible to walk under the strain. You see the great drops of blood coming from him when he saw it. Um, I think effectively the infinitely deep and mysterious conversation between the father and the son went something like this. Son, this is what the cup of my wrath will look like for you to drink. Father, is it possible for me to save my people without drinking that cup? The father says, son, no, there is no other way. Will you do it anyway? And now comes what I consider to be the most heroic, the most courageous, the most submissive act in all of human history. If it is not possible for me to save my people, then that I drink that cup, may your will be done. So at that moment, Christ put his own will completely under the will of the Father. He overturned at that moment the wretched choice, the evil choice made by Adam in the Garden of Eden. And all of the wretched choices we have made through our willful sin, he was willing to do the will of his Father and to stand as our substitute under that terrifying wrath of God. He did it of his own free will. So for us as Christians in Holy Week, we should just bow our head in worship. All generations of Christians should bow their heads in worship. This is the single most courageous decision in human history. So what do we get out of this? The glories of Gethsemane. We see the free will of Jesus properly on display. He went to the cross of his own free will. He was not coerced. He was not forced against his will. We have, therefore, the pinnacle example of the exercise of freedom of will used by Jesus uh, in submitting to his father's choice. We see also the atonement. Um, it says in Romans 3.26 that that. God could be just, is just, and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. We would think it would be unjust for God to um, punish Jesus for sins that he didn't commit if he didn't know that it would be like that to take the wrath of God. Instead, we see that he justly, the Father justly, demonstrated to the Son what it would be like, and Jesus of his own free will took that role. And then we can see also in Gethsemane, the greatest display of loving submission and obedience. Paul wrote in Romans 5.19, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The single act of obedience saves us. Bill, you and I are Christians, uh, not because we're obedient, but because Jesus was obedient. Mm. Not because we're righteous, but because Jesus was righteous on our behalf. And this gives us a perfect display for all time of the two great commandments being fulfilled. Jesus perfectly loved his father, and he perfectly loved us. Um, and to me, that is the example I want to live out the rest of my life. I want to Im imitate Jesus, but I know this. I could never do it. And I'm grateful that Jesus, as my substitute, was willing to drink that cup. So those are the glories and the mysteries of Gethsemane. And, you know, I don't know if any thoughts come into your mind and questions and comments. I'm certainly willing. Yeah. But this is yeah. a powerful meditation. Uh, and, Andy, I don't know if I've ever thought before today, having this conversation with you, that the full revelation of God's wrath was revealed in the garden. 
I was just trying to think of the sweating of blood. And of course, Mm -hmm. if he gets God's full wrath and understands what that cup is, it, it explains the, the sweating of blood. Absolutely. And, and so I just would urge your listeners, look up Mark 14, 33 in the KJV. Look at the word amazed. Look at John 5, 20, where Jesus says the Father shows him all that he's doing. There's a showing aspect. And then you put it together. There is a, a deeper showing of the cup. And look what Jesus, look how he reacted. But then even more, look what he chose to do. Mm. And that's our salvation. It's remarkable. Wow, fantastic. Andy, as always, I love having you on, and I, I appreciate you taking time in your very, very busy week. You've got your uh, message all ready to go for Resurrection Sunday, I take it? I'm excited. Yes, I do. I'm preaching on the ascension. Jesus' ascension into heaven on our behalf to sit at the right hand of God based on his cross uh, to intercede for us. That's what I'm preaching on on Sunday. Now, if you didn't say that, I was going to encourage you to preach on that. <laughs> so you've got me Thanks. as a friend to help you if you ever uh, question what you should do. Thank you again. Well, and have a- I want you to know I love every time you invite me on. It's a deep and rich time, and I'm grateful for your ministry and the things that you do. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you a great deal. Have a wonderful week and a blessed uh, Resurrection Sunday. The same to you, Bill. Thank you so much. All right, Pastor Andy Davis uh, has been my guest. If I uh, have not mentioned before, go to twojourneys.org. That's where you can... See his sermons and his articles and his podcasts and his books and his topics. And you can learn more about Andy at twojourneys.org. I love going over there and listening to his sermon series. There's a sermon series on 1 Corinthians. I think there's 69 sermons in it. And I've listened to a lot of them. Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, Christ Final Week with Jeff Verdorn. Don't go anywhere. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.